Hello, and welcome back to Stand Partners for Life. I'm Nathan Cole. I'm Akiko Taramoto. back back in the uh, home studio here in Pasadena um, we are sort of we are recovering from tour yeah that's me being jet-lagged sorry <laughs> you mean the long pause the long pause <laughs> the glazed silence um, yeah and that's gonna be the topic of this episode uh, all about touring and uh, just before we dive into it I did want to remind all of our listeners that if you haven't got our free guide to choosing instruments or upgrading instruments, uh, do make sure you pick that up. Uh, that's at standpartnersforlife.com slash guide, because we go into, I'm, I'm actually helping someone right now find a new instrument, and it's it's taken a lot of years and a lot of searches to come up with, you know, just how to listen to new instrument sound, unfamiliar instrument sound. So you had a hand in putting that together. You've done your own searches. Yeah, a few. For the most part, I... yeah. I mean, we're not dealers. We're not buying and selling these things all the time. Yeah, we don't have the disposable income to be high-end instrument shopping on a regular basis, so... But it was a really fun guide to put together, and it'll give you a system, you know, our system for listening and evaluating whether you're looking for an instrument right now or not. It's just great to have a way to organize your thoughts on that. So go ahead and pick that up. Standpartnersforlife.com slash guide. It's free and uh, tons of fun, if I do say so myself. So we're going to talk about tour today. And just to maybe color our conversation a little bit, I wanted to read a little something that <laughs> someone wrote to us on iTunes, uh, a review, which I love to read. This listener shares a lot of good thoughts. Um, and all this is in a constructive vein, but they do mention um, my only comment. Well, this comes halfway through the comment, so it's not really their only comment, but I think they mean the only criticism would be that sometimes the problems you describe regarding your playing and work life can, can be seen a little as, quote, first world problems. I believe that if you've made it to the LA Phil and have this amazing job, which is rare in our profession, I would think that anyone would feel accomplished I feel a lot of negativity coming from the outcome, almost as though all this practice brought you to a place where all the insecurities and frustrations are still the same. I'm sure that you both love what you do and don't want to come off as though you are better than anyone else, but I hear a lot of complaining. You know, I think that's fair enough. I think for me, the phrase in there that sticks out is... um, Almost as though all this practice brought you to a place where all the insecurities and frustrations are still the same. And in a way, I, I think that's, that's true. I mean, those insecurities never exactly go away, what you come into the job with. Well, and not to keep on in the complaining vein, but um, I, I do think it gets worse, the insecurities. It can get worse, anyway, as your orchestral life progresses. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to be on our guard against that. Yeah, and I certainly hope we don't sound like we're trying to complain about things that aren't worth complaining about or that we're coming off as superior that, that makes me feel 
kind of terrible, actually. But um, no, but, I mean, I I feel like this comment was saying maybe the complaining is uh, to make sure that we don't come off as sounding better than than other people. Oh, I I wasn't sure. Yeah, Nathan, you have a much thicker skin for this stuff. But um, no, I, I you know, I'm sure we we have covered this already. But you know, the the orchestral job thing can be really really tough on your self esteem. So. Yeah, there's a certain sense of, you know, you, you want to bring home a paycheck as a musician and you're happy when it's, you know, a, like a healthy paycheck, you know, of course. And then but I think you don't think about what that's going to be like in 20 years when, you know, you've been doing the same job for the literally the exact same job for for decades. And, you know, and you're starting to feel like maybe you're toiling in obscurity. and Well, and these concerns i think are they cut across all different levels of orchestra community orchestras and and any professional group as well i'm not sure if i thought oh when i get into a big orchestra all the problems are going to go away i didn't um, know there were problems to be honest right just never really thought about it i think i, I think of- i imagined that i'd always feel like kind of a standout or something and at the risk of sounding arrogant you know i think i, I think i thought you know, the, the way you feel the day you win your job, you just don't imagine how distant that's going to be. Oh, right. Because on that day, you're the, you're the star, yeah. you're the hero. Yeah, you know, everybody knows who you are. <laughs> you know, people are trying to talk to you and stuff. And 20 years later, you just, you know, you're looking for some place in the building where nobody can find you because you just can't stand the thought of having another conversation that you, you, you don't want to have. <laughs> so, well, yeah. I mean, if if this podcast can be both uh maybe not a bucket of cold water in the face exactly but you know a dose of reality i think we want it to be a dose of reality but then also to to point out all the the great reasons that we do what we do too so i think as long as we we keep those in balance then we're uh yeah i'm sorry i I have a feeling that your your point in bringing up the question didn't didn't work i think we only kept complaining more so no well i i think i just as we talk about tour which can be uh you know, that that's a chance for us to hear our colleagues complain a lot because when you travel together with a hundred people, sure. you hear complaints about everything from airport lines to airport food to hotel food to <laughs> everything else. So, I, you know, as we get into this topic, I want to make sure we accentuate the great things about two or two, which I, I think we're already prepared to do. Yeah. And of course, we can edit all of that out if <laughs> that's just not going anywhere. No, I still feel terrible about saying all these negative things. We should restart and say some nice things about our job. <laughs> well, that's easy enough to do. I mean, I think tour tour is a great chance to get to know your colleagues and maybe some different colleagues than you're used to hanging out with because you're thrown together with other people in an airport line than, than you might be just sitting with your section on stage. Yeah. And, um, these days we don't, we don't get to hang out after a concert anymore. You know, we're really just exiting the building, racing home to relieve the babysitter so we can maybe we just get to bed or whatever. It's, it's a very different existence than, sorry, different existence than on tour. Right. So that's, that's already a a nice thing to build some new friendships and well, let's, Briefly go over what an orchestra tour is like with the LA Phil, how long it is. Most of ours are, if it's a domestic tour, it might be 
just one week or maybe a week and a half. And if it's an international tour and we, we tend to do one international tour every season and those are what somewhere around two weeks, maybe stretching to three. No, no much closer two? to two. Yeah. Really okay. ever longer than two. But a far cry from when my grandpa was in the Philadelphia orchestra doing the eight week tour by train of Europe and yeah, I mean, we may that? as well just give away our kids if we if we did something like that. Yeah, I guess there were basically no orchestra couples that would sort of... Well, no, I mean, there were basically no <clears throat> women, so right. they didn't really have the same sex couples then either, in the orchestra at least. So. <laughs> I was going to say they had them. But <laughs> they had them. Maybe not openly. But not openly and not in the Philadelphia Orchestra. So, yeah, it was 100 guys traveling together in hot, cramped train compartments and was it a, a hotel room once a week? Yes, one hotel room a week, and the rest of the time they slept on the train and took so whatever kind of showers you can take in a sleeping car sink on the train. Yeah, there's yeah. some. Maybe it's a good thing it was all men on those tours. I'm not sure. I'm sure there are many ways that it was easier just to have all men. But yeah, but yeah, the wives were all back home taking care of the kids and. Uh, yeah, that just wouldn't really work with Not us, us. Uh, much longer than two weeks. Even two weeks can seem like a long time away from the kids. And and, and we're, we're really lucky. Here's a positive. We're really lucky that um, we have things negotiated into our contract that cover pretty much every aspect of the tour so that, you know, the hotels have to be sort of certain minimum level. And of course, the, the schedule is is carefully um, scrutinized by the committee so that you know that, that there's no, nothing that's irregular in terms of uh, conforming with the contract so yeah free days that you know time off and so in a in this two-week tour for example uh where were the places we went we flew out of la went to boston two concerts there uh one concert in dc two concerts in new york and then European portion of the tour, two concerts in London, plus an extra new music concert, and then two concerts in Paris. So what's that, a total of nine, ten concerts in two weeks? No, it was only... Well, five venues, and the only place where we played one concert was DC, right? So that, that should be nine. Is that right? Or did we only play one concert in Boston? One concert in Boston, that's right. Okay, this is bad that I already can't remember this and we just got back. So eight concerts plus one new music concert Yes. in a two-week right. tour. Yeah, we never play in two different cities on the same day, but we will play what we call, we'll do travel and play days, right? Where you wake up in one hotel, get packed up on the bus to the train station or airport, get to the new city and maybe do a sound check, maybe not and then a concert that night. And those are the busiest, those are the most hectic days. Yeah, I think that um, you, if you're going to feel really well-rested for all the concerts, you you have to definitely prioritize that, you know, and, and just treat it like it's a work trip and you're, you right. know, <laughs> you get to the hotel, you rest. You just, you know, you lie down, you maybe order room service for dinner, you get the bus to the to the venue and then you you know you play the concert and then you and then you pretty much go straight to bed maybe you'll get a drink or something after but you really just are really focused on on conserving your energy for work um 
And it can be tough because most people try to do something, some kind of half and half thing where they, you know, they'll sightsee or, and, uh, try restaurants, you know, cause there's all these, it's so tempting. It's amazing cities that we go to great food and just great things to see. So it can go both ways. I mean, either some people get a real balance or they just get to see a couple things, but it can be easy to be like, I'm going to do this, this, and this, and this. And then by yeah. 6 p.m., I'll be, you know, ready to take the bus to the hotel or I'll just take the, I'll take the subway to the, to the hall. And I mean, that way I won't have to deal with the bus and, you know, be back at the hotel by any certain time. And, and those are the times when you start feeling pretty run down about halfway through because you've been just running yeah. yourself a little bit ragged. Burning the tour candle at both ends. Yeah. And as we get older, too, I think we, we, we have to be more cognizant of that as well. We, we try, we you know, for a while energy. there, I, I feel as if we were getting good at going places and saying, I'm just, you know, I don't need to spend all day outside. And I did a couple tours like that. And then I think once we had kids and we started touring, you know, together without the kids, you know, it got really tough again. So it's like, let's we're alone this is <laughs> like, our only chance kind of like a vacation work hybrid thing and so you start trying to do it all again and then you just like i'm i'm completely exhausted we got back days ago and i'm still like recovering i know sometimes on these tours you know the especially if the city is so much fun um you're going around and you're like oh man if only the concert wasn't getting in the way of this awesome day here in DC or whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty easy to start viewing work as as an encumbrance to your fun time on your vacation. <laughs> Which then you stop and think about it, you're like, ah, I'm here to work. Right. And yeah, this wouldn't exist without the <laughs> without the concerts either. So um yeah, sometimes we feel like the people in one flew over the cuckoo's nest, right? They they finally get out on the boat after they haven't been out of the asylum for years and you know, want to make the most of the day. Do you remember your again? first tours? I think we, we were of similar age, right? We both started working in our early 20s. And I don't know if I really count the tours that I did in my first job, the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, because those those were a little bit on the less glitzy side, at least the two, um, the two years that I was there. I remember my last hotel well or motel as a member of the saint paul chamber orchestra was a super eight somewhere in the midwest but as soon as i joined the chicago symphony it was like yeah i just couldn't believe it was real you know i I'd opened my tour book and it was like oh what's what is today bringing i didn't even look ahead <laughs> what's a, what's a tour book right it's like uh no i mean like you probably never had one in saint paul it's like uh maybe not but yeah you know starting in chicago and certainly your first job here in LA, um, you'd get this book at the start of the tour, but yeah, I'd open it up and say, Oh, today it says free day. Oh, well, you know, breakfast is in the lobby restaurant from six to 11. And then what should I do? And obviously you weren't around and maybe I'd practice a little and then I'd just go out and walk and walk and well, but then I'd feel guilty. Like, Oh, here I am in whatever city, uh, Berlin, I'd, I have to see these are the big sites. I've never been to Berlin, so I've got to see all these things. And yeah, I'd be exhausted by the concert. Yeah, I can't remember what my my first international tour. You know, we went to London a few times, Edinburgh. And had you done uh, much or any traveling outside the U.S. at that point? Yeah, very little. I mean, you know, there was that summer where I was in Italy for a few weeks, for five weeks. And um, 
That was for the Spoleto Festival? Mm-hmm. I'd been, my dad had taken me to Portugal once when I was 14. So right. I think that was it. That was really the extent of my international travel. And so, yeah, it was, yeah, it was a, it was a real thrill to go as part of an orchestra. And it's still, it's still excite. I get really excited to plan. Well, yeah, like you tour. said, more yeah. and more we feel like, ah, this is our limited time without the kids. So we've got to pack it to the gills with. Yeah. Yeah, there's um, there's that. But I, I just love the feeling. I love I even love stupid things like telling people you're gonna be out of town for two weeks. And you're just like, <laughs> I am so important. You know, and Do you yeah, change your uh, outgoing message? I your... don't because <laughs> and I miss doing that. I I miss getting on the plane and one last thing I did being <laughs> I will be out of town. I'll be unavailable <laughs> until, you know, like you may reach me at my email address and <laughs> yeah, don't do that anymore. So I haven't done yeah. that in a while. Well, before we talk about what actually happens on the tour, what are some of the things we've got to take care of before a tour, I guess, as individuals and as an orchestra? Every tour has weeks leading up to it called tour prep weeks, right? Where we we play the repertoire, we play the programs that we're going to take on tour. And again, this was very different in my grandfather's day because they would play with their music director virtually year round. They didn't see uh, very many guest conductors so with their music director they'd play a hundred pieces during the year and then on tour they'd take you know 50 of those pieces or something so they didn't do specific tour prep weeks necessarily but with us we take two very specific programs or maybe three and we we workshop those here in disney hall the couple weeks before and uh, so you know we want to have the same personnel for those weeks as we do on the tour. So for example, when we need to hire substitute players, they've got to be available for a whole month at a stretch. And then as the two of us, yeah, we work out childcare and this time we got my parents to come out and help with the kids while we were gone. Yeah. With kids, it is, it's complicated for the, with both of us going because at the moment we still leave them at home. I mean, sometime eventually soon we're going to be taking one or you know, one kid at a time or eventually all three. So that'll be even more complicated. But there are kids on tour. There are spouses on tour and there are provisions for that. I mean, if if we wanted to take kids or caregivers, we'd obviously just have to pay their way. But they could be part of the group flights. They could be part of the group hotels and all that. And that's something that people do. But I know we've always been wary of that, not only because it would just completely change our tour experience, but we worry about how it would affect our colleagues. We've, we've both been part of those plane rides and bus rides and train rides where someone's kid is either melting down because they're a kid, or maybe they're having the time of their life and they're singing and shouting and dancing, but the whole orchestra has just finished a really grueling concert and everybody's tired. And not yeah. And again, it's a time with. when you have to remind yourself, you know, it's, it's not vacation. So you know, it's not vacation for your colleagues or you, and you don't want to make them feel like they're on someone else's horrible vacation. So. <laughs> yeah. Cause there, there's a lot of traveling. I mean, and the first part of the tour we just did, the domestic portion was felt a lot busier than the European portion. We just traveled more and played more concerts in a shorter span of time. Uh, Cause we had two nights in Boston, I think, or was it three? Uh, we got to Boston Tuesday and we left on Thursday. Yeah, so right. two nights in Boston, one yeah. night in D.C., 
And then we had two nights in New York, um, as opposed to when we got to Europe and we had five nights in London, four nights in Paris. Yeah. So the domestic part of the tour was a lot of running around and, you know, with a big group, things have to happen way in advance. If, if the group has a, a noon flight, then luggage is collected either that morning, you know, between 6.30 and 7.30, or it's often collected the night before so that they can either fly it or truck it separately to the next destination. And you know, everybody's got to be on a bus from the hotel way early, and then you get to the airport and everybody's got to collect their boarding passes together and move to the gate together. <laughs> I know we had a, a colleague in the Chicago Symphony who, um, you know, would walk with a cane or walk with some help. And then as soon as, uh, as soon as the seating was opened up on any bus or plane, we had another colleague that joked, uh, this guy turned into secretariat. He was galloping to the heat cause he wanted the very front seat. He wanted to be first on the bus, first on the plane. <laughs> It's not such a fun energy to, to be around when you're on tour because, yeah, you just, you need, you need the, as much serenity as you can wring from these, these moments, you know, being a huge group of people that you've been seeing for a long time. So it's not good if somebody's really making themselves a pest in any way. <laughs> and you don't want to ever be that person. Yeah. Something we're oh, constantly trying to watch out for is, are we becoming the pest? Yeah. Cause it's funny, uh, you know, part of getting a job and keeping a job is being a good citizen, right? You know, when you're around the hall, even driving into the hall and parking, you know, you, you develop polite routines so that you don't annoy your colleagues. But then on tour, all of a sudden, your colleagues get to see you. They don't see you getting dressed, but they they see you arriving at an airport and shopping and getting in lines and maybe eating breakfast. They get glimpses into your life that they don't get the rest of the year yeah that can be tough as a couple i think because we yeah we don't we don't want some unflattering side of our married life to to seep into you know our colleagues consciousness right yeah because if you know if we're having a bad day or a bad morning or anything it's in front of a hundred other people yeah we hope people have short tour memories but since our tour memories are pretty long, I doubt that's true. <laughs> we've, I think we've done all right. I don't remember having an actual. Nah. Yeah, we've 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 done fine on tour. Well, this tour is fun. This tour, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. I just I I I think I never had a decent night of sleep, which can be tough. I'm, I'm not a great sleeper, as you know, and so um, for people like me, there are a few of us who who are don't adjust well so much to time change and uh, and just general environment change and so yeah there there are a few of us who spend most of the tour feeling pretty run down and people are trading uh, tips about sleep medication and sleep strategies and all that right like, yeah usually over like a couple cocktails after a concert which is a yeah it's like not the best strategy for getting the best night's sleep either <laughs> So meals on tour, again, with my first tours, my, my challenge was I just, the concept of a per diem blew me away. And, you know, that happens in any line of work, right? There's always some allotted amount of money. So when I was starting out, I thought, oh God, I'm going to, you know, save all this money. So the hotel breakfast, I realized I could stretch it 
to cover lunch as well, because the breakfasts in these hotels, especially the European ones, are often a buffet. Oh, so you would like eat so much that you wouldn't have to eat lunch? Well, I would eat a lot at breakfast, but then, you know, also there might be a selection of rolls, breads. No, don't don't tell me. Cheeses. (laughs) (laughs) Stuffing it into like a little sack. Not a sack, but you know, maybe a napkin or something. I'd make I'd make a couple little sandwiches out of the Wow, I don't recognize you at all in the story. Yeah. I was twenty two. What are you gonna do? Um, it's hey, it's not a bad idea. So you know, that then there would be my breakfast and lunch and all I'd have to worry about was dinner and who knows what places I found appealing to eat back then by myself. You're just nodding your head like, yeah, well, I can imagine. I, I've heard old, old Country Buffet. Old Country Buffet I did visit in the Twin Cities. That wasn't even tour. <laughs> I must have been the only individual eater at Old Country Buffet. Oh, that is so sad. I know. I, I remember. <laughs> Sorry, there's not a tour story any longer. But yeah, showing up to a concert with the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra and a really friendly the head stage hand was there and like, all right, so Nathan, what'd you what were you up to today? And it's like, oh well I, I went to a place. Do you know this place, Old Country Buffet? <laughs> just kinda of laughed. He's like, Oh yeah, the folks in town? I was like, Oh no, no, just went just by yourself? Yeah, I just went, you know, went there and ate by myself. Solo trip to O C B. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i that really made me kind of look in the mirror for a second um, yeah, well not, my solo trips to you know shop by myself and sacks or whatever probably even more it's a little more chic than old country buffet yeah but. maybe a little less financially advisable but yeah <laughs> um, but on tour i mean now one of our favorite pastimes is planning out the meals and sometimes you got to be creative because the meal times are strange uh, we would be, often have a, yeah. a rehearsal, let's say what they would call an acoustic rehearsal, which is just a short, I don't know, 6.30 to 7.15 and then an 8 o'clock concert. So really, you you if the rehearsal's at 6.30, the bus to the hall might be at 5.30. And so you <laughs> that really means dinner's about at 3.30 so that you can get back to the hotel and get on the bus. So you either do that or eat dinner after the concert at 11 when we've we've kind of done it both ways yeah we did that a few times and um you just feel terrible the next day and you know like i personally i don't i don't sleep well and eat so late and yeah i mean i'd never make it as a soloist for a number of reasons but i you know we have <laughs> friends who you know they, they live the life and it's like they they just cruise through it and how they they manage to travel far and sleep and perform concertos and you know that's incredible well and some of our friends who do that get very very particular you know they have their routine and you know they've got to eat certain things at certain times and at first it sounds completely unglamorous and then you realize yeah you can't really you can't do it glamorous night after night and still expect to well unless you're Vladimir Horowitz right yeah, Horowitz apparently, well, although, you know, this all came from his tremendous anxiety and, you know, he had, had to basically be pushed on the stage every night. Oh, I, for, I anyway. forgot that. And his stomach, he, his stomach, he claimed, was so flighty he could only eat, um, he could only eat Dover's soul. And so it had to be flown in to wherever he was 
performing, but I mean, yeah, that would be nice if yeah, I someone mean, would just can, fly in what right, I wanted to eat. You know, and <laughs> order order stuff from like thousands of miles away and have it delivered. Well, if I when when my comeback recital, you know, at age eighty is greeted by lines around the block, then then I will earn the right to fly in whatever I want to eat. Uh, yeah, so uh, tour eating fun, but erratic. Yeah, and and sometimes that can be a result of language barriers too. I mean, this particular tour was either domestic or London or Paris. So really the only foreign language we were dealing with was French or the Boston accent. But, you know, when we've gone on tour to slightly more distant countries, you really have to, you're kind of at the mercy of the the wait staff, how much they want to explain things or if the menus have pictures or <laughs> which Whatever. is not a good sign if <laughs> maybe maybe you don't want to choose those places <laughs> yeah i mean we we certainly managed to fit in some some great meals on the tour we make it a priority to try to you know search out some places that we've been dying to try or read about or yeah because when you have the time then we never have that time here in la so yeah or you know it's la so it's you know the greatest hamburger in the world is 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 in Los Angeles. Awesome. You know, and you read about it, it's in Venice. Like it might as well be in Venice, Italy. Yeah, basically. You know, you're probably going to get there <laughs> with the same frequency as, <laughs> this is, yeah, we don't, we don't get out to the. Although on tour, yeah, side. your tolerance sometimes, be, sometimes because you don't know how far away something is, you're more likely to travel far afield. And you don't have to drive, right? So, yeah, that yeah. was, I'm more and more impressed, especially living in LA. Every city we go to has some kind of transit where so, yeah. you know, we really only took a couple cabs the entire two weeks. Yeah, it really got better and better. I mean, culminating in Paris with the metro, which was amazing. Like even at 1130 at night, you're waiting maybe three or four minutes for a train. Yeah. First world problems. Well. There you go. So did you want to talk at all about the tour concerts? Like what, what well, that's yeah, like? I mean, what the halls and, were like, you know, what were the... Definitely. And, you know, why tour also? I, I know we... Yeah, we've been thinking about we, that recently. It used to be orchestras um, had the tour in order to sell records, and record sales were obviously a measure of prestige, but they also brought in money. And, yeah, it was just, it was what you did. It was sort of, it would have been unthinkable for an orchestra of any repute not to tour, and again, yeah, you had records to sell and people couldn't hear your playing unless they bought your record or unless they came to see you live when you visited their area. Now, obviously, everything's different. We can hear the Berlin Phil on their digital concert hall anytime we want. And you know, any orchestra, even the middle school orchestra is on YouTube. So, you know, we don't need to go anywhere for people to hear us. So why do it? Yeah, and I actually had never thought about this until now, after all this time. I think because, you know, I haven't actually, when was the last time I, I guess I did go on an international tour two years ago. But I think before that, so just, it, it hasn't been so frequent. You know, well, you missed I, a couple, at least with pregnancies. And... Right. Yeah, so there was that. I And I when Deborah Borda was in charge of the LAFL, she was sort of, sort of known for not, not really thinking tours were worth the money because she felt that the whole model is outdated, as you say. Well, let's be clear too that most orchestras lose money when they tour. 
So the, the way it works is that when these things are planned, let's say we, we think we might want to go to Boston. There will be a concert presenter in Boston, which might be the hall itself. It's often, you know, whoever owns the hall and they'll say, we want to bring you guys in, um, and we'll pay the LA Philharmonic Association, this certain flat fee to play a concert on this night. And, you know, if the LA Phil Association agrees to that, then it's the Boston presenter's job to make back all that money and hopefully more so that they make a profit. But the fee that we, the orchestra take in is, um, usually not enough to cover costs, you know, the costs of paying everybody's salary and getting everybody there and all the instruments and all that. So, uh, American orchestras, when they tour, almost always need sponsors to, to cover the costs. And so, yeah, her point about, you know, what are we actually in the end, what are we getting out of it if we're just trying to find sponsors to cover the costs of this? Yeah. I think she was more keen on getting that money for other things that we were doing. And that's certainly a, you know, a really valid way of looking at it. And she's, she's great at what she does. And, but this time I was thinking about it because I think, you know, it had been two years since we toured and I thought our last tour was really good. We played Mahler three and Appalachian spring. Uh, but more notably, I think Mahler three, um, <laughs> forget about Appalachian spring. Um, Anyway, so I, I I was thinking about this after we got back, actually, and I thought it's good that we it's good that we did that. I mean, you know, we had our gripes about the concerts, you know, this or that went wrong. This was, you know, and the usual, yeah, complaining, just saying like this this should have been better, that should have been better. This is embarrassing that this didn't happen. This went wrong. Or, but after the fact, it's like you know you you have to do those concerts because I've never I haven't seen that level of focus among our colleagues since the last tour we did, to be totally honest, you know, I mean, and I, not to make it sound like we're unfocused on a regular basis, but I mean, there's a, an extra level. It's, you know, we compare it to like playoffs, you know, there's that kind of energy, like you're, it, every, every note matters extra. And is in that, that because context. we're in front of a, a new audience? That yeah. They're, and they're probably only going to hear us. Some of them will only hear us that one time in their entire lives, you know, when our friend uh, Vivek Kameth, who's out there, hello. Yeah, he always makes the point that members of the New York Philharmonic, you know, they're well aware that audiences in New York, they basically hear every orchestra in the world come through there on tour. And so the New York audiences hear all the world's orchestras at their best, at their peak focus, and they hear the New York Philharmonic on a regular basis you know, sometimes peak focus and sometimes not. And I know exactly what he means. Cause you're, you're right. We go on these trips and we play for new audiences and yeah. And you're, you're trying to bring hopefully repertoire that is your best and that represents you really well. And you're trying to play at your best. So in every sense, trying to, trying to put your best foot forward. And that's such a valuable experience as a group. I mean, as a unifying thing for you know for what you could if to be cynical about it you could say this is just a hundred different people playing this music and um you know i know french newspapers sometimes have a thing about how american orchestras you know we we come from all different places you know it's there's no sense of terroir 
to right. what we're doing basically right we're like a some wine that's been just like just like a gazillion different grapes from a gazillion different places <laughs> so yeah there's there's a certain feeling like yeah that you know i guess you could say that about an orchestra where like what what's a unifying force for us and hopefully you know that's the music director usually and but it, you know the tour does add a whole extra dimension of um let's you know let's get our brains together and make this into something memorable that hopefully people will want to come back for you know if we come back to the city or you know I'm always sitting there thinking my paranoid little mind like like really hope they ask us back to the city yeah. they're always great cities <laughs> and you're like you know I love Boston I went in DC I want, I want to go back to every single one of those places I, I really hope they're not sitting there going you know what like <laughs> I don't think we need the LA fill to come back <laughs> Because the fourth chair violinist just uh, just flubbed that shift. I think we could probably live without the LA Phil. Yeah, you yeah. you ruin the concert. Yes, yes, so important. Um, and also on tour, you know, we play the same programs so many times that there's a freedom that comes with that too, right? You know, you you know the show's going to go on, so you might feel along with that intense focus is a confidence, right, and the willingness to try new things sure and i think um dudamel felt that way yeah seemed like you know and i mean the the tour concerts that we had in chicago with baron boy sometimes verged on i mean that that was too loose yeah so because that's, he really that's didn't like rehearsing bad tour story for me i mean so my first tour with the chicago symphony was uh included like the first stop was berlin and uh and also you know, we were going to stop at in Vienna and uh, I forget where else, but yeah, probably London. Yeah, London we did. And it was Mahler 9. So you can imagine we're playing Mahler 9 in Vienna. But anyway, so our first stop was Berlin. So we get there and he, apparently you guys had played it like a lot, you know, and I this is before I got there and I'd really hardly played Mahler 9 at all. And I remember being pretty frantic about it, like thinking, I don't, I don't know this as well as I should, you know, I'm kind of used to a lot of preparation for tour and we get out there and it was, you know, everyone, even though you guys had played it a lot, it was like, it needed a little more prep than he'd given it, you know, and he, we get out there and it was not good. And the review said it sounded like we didn't know the music, which is not a good thing to read in a review. And then, <laughs> um, but that could have been lost in translation too. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure the German actually meant, you know, they very prepared. It was one long word that meant total mastery. <laughs> total mastery with less than optimal knowledge of the of the score. Um so yeah, that was that was kind of a, a very stressful first experience in the CSO with the tour and also then we went to the music Ryan and you know, uh playing Mahler there it's not not great to not feel good about it, and it was again kind of a mess. And yeah, that that was, and goes to show you. I mean, I don't think the CSO is in any danger of not getting asked back to those places, but um, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they haven't been back to Berlin since we <laughs> <laughs> destroyed Mahler Nine there. But they still talk about that Mahler yeah, Nine. Yeah, <laughs> section violinists do come play Mahler Nine. Um, so yeah, that's you know that's never a good feeling. But so he was yeah the other the other side of he. he didn't want to prepare, didn't want to rehearse. Baron Boim, this is. Baron Boim, and, and, but sometimes, I mean, as you know, you know, the concerts could be absolutely incredible. 
And they were most of the time. I think, you know, the, it had nothing to do with preparation for him. And so often, you know, just magic things would happen kind of out of nowhere. Well, and how much do the the halls have to do with this? Because that, that's something I know that we still talk a lot about. I When I first joined the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, we weren't playing in a great deal of halls. We had our home hall and then all the other places we tended to play were churches and sometimes they'd be high schools maybe and so those had you know incredibly wildly varying acoustics generally on these tours we're playing only in major halls but they still differ greatly from one to the next and it's it's always a hot topic i mean it's the first thing people want to talk about when we walk in a new building what's the sound like in the hall and some of these we play we've played Many times, like Avery Fisher. Oh, no, wait. David Geffen. David Geffen. Hall in New York. And some of the halls we play in are almost brand new, like the one in Paris. And some of them are legendary and ancient, like the Boston Symphony Hall. So how much does that play into how we sound and how we approach the concerts? For example, this tour started in Boston, so that was our very first hall we'd played the stuff in LA a number of times and then we got on stage in Boston. You said that a hall didn't always a uh, didn't bring back only good memories for you. Yeah, there's that. I mean, yeah, so I've, I've taken I think I took three auditions in Boston, so um and Tanglewood auditions. So yeah, like and other than that, I don't think I ever actually made it to a PSO concert when I was an undergraduate, which is embarrassing. So I've never heard a concert in the hall. So all my experiences, basically all my experiences at the hall have been going to take auditions. So when I walked in there, I was just, you know, had a visceral <laughs> sense of dread and horror and well, failure. I had so. unsuccessful audition there too. So One. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that was not a great feeling. And then um, it's funny because my friend Kathy said the same thing she said the exact same thing about boston she said i just have these memories of failed auditions i said yeah god it's so funny how that stink like lingers there over oh, decades I, yeah and i think i remember being in that dressing room i think our dressing room is where i waited and, <laughs> you know and, and then I, they used to have these little soundproof winger cubes back there right I I used, I used maybe they moved them up. when there's an orchestra or something yeah, so that was that was not good. And then, you know, Dave, David Geffen, Avery Fisher, as you know, same thing. I think three auditions in right. New York that, you know, didn't remotely go my way. So, you know, being backstage there is always like, I always feel like someone's just about to come and get me and tell me to leave. <laughs> Bouncer at the club. <laughs> now, of those two, I mean... Symphony Hall is a place that almost everyone loves to play in Boston. I mean, it's, sure. it's the the reverb there is quite a bit more than what we hear in LA or almost any other American hall, and it's it's famous for having the, the so called shoebox shape. Right, it's just a right. It's big, like long all rectangle wood, right? That, all the seats are wood, and the, yeah, yeah. So that's you know nowadays we have consultants and big corporations that build halls and and I love Disney Hall and it's it's very complex and so much thought and planning went into it um 
but we do laugh sometimes we go to a place like boston or vienna where it really is shaped like a shoebox and the sound is awesome <laughs> um yeah. i don't know if it's ideal i mean we there, if we played there regularly there were things we'd have to do i'm sure to to get the best out of the hall but generally in those halls with so much reverb an orchestra is able to make the most of the softer dynamics and the, you know there's only you can play louder and louder, but at a certain point, it just it turns into a wash of sound that lacks clarity. Whereas, you know, you can make the most of those really quiet dynamics and it's magical. It really carries to the back. I felt like the Paris Hall, even though it's brand new and looks quite modern, they had that property too. You know, the reverb in there was more than I remembered and I, I didn't not like a great way like it it's weird it's echoey, there was something a little right? artificial about it yeah i yeah it seemed to have like a vast quality to the where the sound traveled that i didn't love i felt like um not as intimate right the sound was like maybe more reminiscent of like giant bathroom than you know than, than <laughs> i still really well. liked it um yeah i think just last time i had a very emotional response to you know we played Mahler 3 there and for some reason oh, we right. all I think it was late in the tour and we felt like we finally kind of got it together. And, um, and so that it was just, it was a great concert and I think a great experience. And so I, I started thinking of the Philharmonia as one of my favorite halls. And I think it still is. I just was surprised this time that the, the echo just seemed like just very, like on a very large scale and I didn't love it, you know, or that the reverb was on a large scale that I, like I said, it that it was not as intimate as someplace like Boston or Carnegie. Well, there are so many aspects to traveling and playing these concerts. Uh, today we should probably wrap up with a, a few final thoughts. Um, but one, one of the funny things I think going to each of these different halls is how the host orchestra or how the host hall treats the visitors. You know, you hear for basketball arenas, for example, some arenas were famous for having the worst possible visitors locker rooms, you know, so that if you were the visiting team and you walked in there right away, you knew you weren't welcome, you know, it was going to be a hard, hard stay there. And <laughs> New York, we're looking at you. Yeah. <laughs> when we go to the, the Lincoln Center, yeah, the place where the men change clothes, they have all the men in the orchestra crammed into like one quarter of an orchestra lounge and we can't, I mean, we're actually, everybody's laughing. We we can't even, there's not room to turn around to take off your jacket and try to get your street clothes back on. So we have to kind of change in shifts at the end of the concert. It's pretty farcical. Whereas Chicago, I remember you know, both when we were members there and even now, whenever orchestras go to Chicago to tour, they, they all say the same thing. They're like, oh, the locker rooms, wow, those are the most amazing locker rooms. And, you know, they let us use their locker rooms. And I don't yeah. know why that's not the norm. Um, yeah, that seems obvious. And we were just like, we never thought anything of it. And we're, you know, yeah, there's an orchestra coming in. Of course, they're going to use our locker room but i just remember of course the locker room was nice in chicago because you know the weather is so bad that you know nobody really wears right. their concert clothes to the hall i mean you can but you know sometimes we take the train or the bus or something or even just walking you know the 15 feet from the front door to the garage entrance is like you know <laughs> it's like salt and slush and 
things right. that we don't even remember anything about now. But yeah, yeah, I think we had some some pretty decent accommodations in Paris that way. London is strange. I think we had there were seven or eight different women's dressing rooms and seven oh, or eight well, different men's. That's that's the lady and the tiger backstage right. area. Yeah, you can sometimes you forget even which room you left your clothes in, you have to open four or five different little doors to Yeah, it's like shaped like it's like circular and then there's like it's like rows of doors. It's like a gladiatorial arena, right? Kind yeah. of, yeah. Well yeah, so yeah, which one has the, the tiger behind it? New York terrible. <laughs> the proverbial tiger being your colleague that you can't stand to be in close quarters with that you end up awkwardly in the dressing room. <laughs> That has happened. See, look, we've gone this whole episode. We haven't even complained about colleagues. I, Ooh, I well, that's, think. you know. We'll save that. We'll, we'll make that its own episode no, that's, and issue yeah. a warning at the beginning. Yeah. Every Everybody's got colleagues that they like to not hang out with so much. So. Well, but that, that you know, us. that's not unique to tour. Although tour, you, like I say, when you, when you're eating breakfast with, with people, you know, you're spending a lot of time with so them. Their true colors come out. No, the true color, the air, the air, airplanes. Yes, yeah. I think how people test. act in the airport and on airplanes, that's a pretty true yeah. indication of who they are. Just like when you see your colleagues drive in and out of the parking garage, people drive how they play. They, they can't get away from it. They drive and play how they are. Yeah. <laughs> um, did you want to get into at all like what it's like to be back from the tour? Is that a whole other? Well, let's yeah, let's make that how we how we sign off, I think. Okay. Um, you already it, mentioned that we don't exactly feel rested and refreshed after. There's that. Um, but I think on a, from a playing standpoint, um, I was interested to contrast what it was like to be back this week playing, obviously different repertoire from what we'd taken on tour to having played the same music for an entire month, basically. Maybe I'm, you know, I'm getting older. Maybe it was, it was a tough adjustment that way too, to come back and, and play Dvorak. And, you know, we, Dvorak is always hard. As we know, you know, there's always some surprising passages that warrant, you know, some good practice time. <laughs> but it was just harder than I remembered to, to come back and try to get back into that mode of just, you know, quick turnover, just a few rehearsals, get to it, you know, perform. You're, you're going to make some mistakes. You just let them go. And, you know, you kind of like, well, you know, we're back at home. And, you know, the pressure, the scrutiny is a little bit less than on a tour concert. So you're kind of like, well, you know, just knock them out and i think that was a weird feeling and i wasn't i'm still not really I think used to it again so yeah that was strange i mean we started rehearsing on friday and then the concert was saturday had our yeah. first concert saturday and it's like oh, hey wait i'm used to a couple weeks prep for this yeah and you know really getting to know the conductor even because you know, we'd only seen bishkoff semyon bishkoff for you know those three rehearsals and you know he's he's a very He's a great conductor and, you know, it just felt a little bit strange to just have to suddenly read him and read the music very quickly. So I, yeah, I, I had, I had a harder time this time than I remember coming back and, and getting back into the regular routine of playing, you know, as opposed to, as opposed to the tour model. Yeah. It yeah. was strange. and But it just highlighted for me that I, I think it's very important to, to get out there and, and put that pressure on the orchestra i think that you know it it would be great to to keep doing it and you know we will the next year has three tours coming up so we'll, we'll get an ample opportunity to to figure out more what we're about 
And then, you know, it'll be great. Well, the tours are touchstones, right? You know, for from now on, you know, when, when LA plays Shostakovich 5, we can, and we will, we'll say, oh, you remember that, you know, 18 tour with this piece and remember what happened in Boston with it and remember what happened in London. Yeah, there's just that much more a sense of that the show will go on and, and no matter and, who's yeah. conducting it. And I think the the shared experience, the common experience thing, it's huge, you know? Yeah, I mean, we, and I've told you this story, neither of us was there for this, but Philly Orchestra went on tour. Some of my friends were in the orchestra at that time, but all the luggage got lost, um, including everybody's concert clothes. And so rather than canceling or postponing the concert, um, there was no time, so they just told everyone to play the concert wearing whatever they had on. Most people traveled in decent clothing, but some people had Wait, t-shirts was, with. Yeah, well, it was, so, was it Jason Depew? Uh, Jason had a Jason was wearing a t-shirt that said "Who's your daddy?" in big capital letters, and so I think they managed to stop him going on stage with that. If someone let him borrow some kind of a covering <laughs> or turn it inside out, but um, <laughs> you know. Then when you, then everybody's <laughs> got to get on stage and you've got to come together as a group. As silly as it sounds, you know, what, why should clothing matter? But of course it does. It's a break in the routine and everybody's got to, yeah, it's a little harder to pull off a big serious piece of music with Who's Your Daddy. But if an orchestra can do that, then they'll always remember, hey, we, you know, we did the Who's Your Daddy concert. We can get through it with this clown conductor that's in front of us. Yeah. Confidence. It's a big it's a big factor. Well, we'll we'll look forward to the the tours next season and but I am glad to be back from this one. I have great memories, but I'm glad to be back. It's it's been a nice homecoming, I think. Well, thanks for doing a jet lagged episode of Stand Partners. Now I'm um, wide awake. Let's do another. Yeah. <laughs> and thank you as always for listening. We're so glad to have you here with us. Look forward to seeing you back for the next episode of Stand Partners for Life.